I would invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to the book of Philippians. And the book of Philippians chapter 1. This evening we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18, the Lord's help. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. The Apostle Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing this evening. Our great God and heavenly Father, we do ask for your help this evening as we dive into your word, as we have the joy to be able to seek the truth out that you have revealed in it. We ask for your spirit. We ask that you would hide those truths in our hearts and use it mightily to change us, that we might love you all the more and have our faith increased. We pray all these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. This evening, as we look at this uh, section of Philippians from chapter 1, there's really two questions that I want us to, to think about. And that is, where do you find your joy? And then, how easily is that joy shaken? Now, obviously, we are in the book of Philippians. That is a book written by the Apostle Paul. And to understand really where the book of Philippians falls in the life and events of Paul, we need to do a little bit of backlogging. We, we could go back to Acts and, and read through his missionary journeys and get an understanding of the church in Philippi from, from Acts 16. But what we need to understand is that uh, as we come to examine this, we are looking at the person of Paul and his circumstances and his uh, joy that he finds in those circumstances. And so, to give you an understanding of this, we need to understand that he finds himself now, as he is writing the book of Philippians, in prison. Since the planting of the church in Philippi, he has been busy with the work of the gospel. He has been traveling around, he has been preaching, he has been well-received in some areas, many coming to know the Lord as Savior. And in other places, he's been rejected, and he has uh, been beaten and stoned and, and thrown out of cities and he now finds himself arrested. He, he finds himself arrested, as we find in Acts 21, under false pretenses. He finds them arrested, or finds himself arrested under false claims by the Jewish people. And so, what happens to this preacher is he is now given a prisoner status. And that prisoner status comes with many hardships, many difficulties. Uh, Paul, in the writing of this letter, even before then, has his life threatened. Uh, he, a, a plot comes against his life by the same Jews who have accused him, and thankfully that is thwarted by God's providence, but he has his life threatened and he is shipped to and from to different authorities and having to defend himself against these false claims. 
he finally appeals to Rome. And they decide to send him to Rome for a proper trial as he is a Roman citizen. And he gets on a ship and ends up shipwrecked. And then his life is yet threatened again because as the water's coming in, what do the guards do? They say, well, we can't let any of these prisoners escape. We should kill all of them, as is custom. But thankfully, one of the guards comes to his defense and he is saved and spared once more. He makes it to the island of Malta and then finally makes it to Rome and is imprisoned. And so as we look at this this life and circumstances and the joy that Paul finds in his life at this time, we need to ask ourselves those questions again. Where do I find my joy and how easily is that joy shaken? And Paul serves as an example for us in these verses really throughout all of his writings, but but specifically in these verses, he, he serves as an example to us of how to find joy in different situations and circumstances. And there are three in this text that I'd like us to find, and that is finding joy in the providence of God, finding joy in the advance of the gospel, and then finding joy in sinful motives. So as we look at the first, finding joy in the providence of God, look with, look with me at verse 12. And look at what Paul says. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What is Paul doing here with that statement? I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What Paul is doing is he is giving glory to God. He is giving glory to God, but more specifically, he is bringing praise to God and his providence. He understands and he is coming to grips with humility. He is coming to grips with humility and understanding that he is not the one who is in control. But instead, he finds himself at the hands of an all-omniscient, omnipresent, all-wise God who is, of course, in control of everything. Notice what Paul does not say. He does not say, I want you to know, brothers, that what I have done has really served to expand the gospel. He doesn't say that. And in doing that, he is, again, bringing praise to God himself. He's casting off hero worship. He's casting off any kind of signs of pity that the Philippian church might send his way because of his situation. And he's saying, I am in the hands of a God who is an omniscient and sovereign God. He has placed me here in his providence, and he is using me to extend the gospel of Jesus Christ and advance it for his purposes. Now, this is really how we should be looking at our own lives, isn't it? When we come in times of difficulty, when we, when we use our gifts and the Lord blesses the use of those gifts, those, we have to understand, are not our own. We have to come to grips with humility in our lives, understanding that those have been given to us by our sovereign God and are being used in his providence to do the things that come about. And so Paul in this is not only coming to grips with his own humility, understanding that he is in himself expendable according to the Lord in in the advance of his gospel, even though he is a faithful servant of the Lord. But he's also casting off any kind of worship that could come towards his way, any kind of of building up in that way that would would maybe uh, give him pomp or, or a higher status in his own mind. And he is giving all praise and honor to God himself. And in, in doing this, he is giving the church of Philippi a sense of perspective. We live in a world full of various perspectives, don't we? 
I noticed that you all are right across the street from Kent State University. And colleges, they are a hard place and there are a lot of perspectives there. And if you think about how the world or how really the Church of Philippi could potentially be looking at Paul and his situation, there's, there's several ways that they could be looking at it. They could first be thinking of him as a victim. They could, they could be saying, well, you know, Paul's been beaten. He's been, you know, all he was trying to do was really uh, have this cause and, and preach freely. And now he's being censored and he's being shut down and he's been thrown in prison. And we probably need to picket and rally and, and you know, maybe burn a car or two. But that's not what he wants them to do. He does not want them to see him as a victim. The, the other thing is that they could consider him a terrible Christian. And, and how easily this is prominent in the evangelical church, the broadly evangelical church, the local PCA church. We could say, well, Paul's in prison. He's, he's suffering for Christ. But maybe he has this underlying sin that he's dealing with. And if he maybe just had better faith or, or tithe more or, or I don't know what, what something he could do uh, in confessing these things to the Lord where maybe his situation would change. But that is a, a false idea of providence of God. It is a false idea of serving the Lord and, and uh, obtaining glory for the Lord because the Lord tells us that the world will hate us. And Paul is experiencing that right now. So what is Paul doing? He is, he is not wanting them to, to consider him a victim. He's not wanting them to consider him a, a hero of any kind. What is it that Paul is doing with this statement? He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's saying, this is the providence of the Lord, and in this I rejoice. And if we look at the life of Paul, what is it that he has done? He has not done anything out of the ordinary. He has not done anything uh, extreme in the sense of, of being some kind of a, a zealot of some sort. He is, of course, a zealot for the faith and a, and a great uh, godly man. But he is doing what God has told him to do. He is doing what God has called him to do. And he is doing it wholeheartedly. He is doing it faithfully. And he is doing it with the consequences of the world hating him. He finds himself in prison, beaten, uh, cast down. But he knows that he is in the hands of a perfect God of sovereignty, and he brings glory to him. Brothers and sisters, is this how we view our hardships? Is this how we view our suffering? Do we see them and do we, we look at our situation? Do we get frustrated? Do we consider ourselves victims of this God that we cannot see? Or do we, do we get confused and, and maybe go to God and say, God, I, I do all of these things. My, my children love you. I tithe regularly. I'm in church morning and evening. I, I don't know of anything that I'm doing wrong. Why am I suffering like this? Or do we look at our suffering and we look at our situations and our hardships and we bring glory to God for his providence? Do we react the, the right way in each circumstance where we can rejoice with the Lord in the suffering that he has placed us in? Have you ever really thought about your reaction and how strong of, of a, a witness that can be to the world? When you are going through a hardship and you're at work and somebody tells, you know, asks you, how are you doing? And, and you tell them the, the great plight of your life, but you rejoice and you say, my God is, is providential. He is sovereign. He is the one that is 
ordained all of these things. And the person at work just looks at you like, this guy is crazy. I would never react this way. But it, it is such a giant witness for the Lord and what he does in our lives. So Paul finds joy in the providence of God. But he also finds joy in the advance of the gospel. Look with me again at, at verses 12 through 14. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord in my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul is finding Joy in the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the providence of God nonetheless, but the advance of the gospel. And he does that really in three ways in these three verses here. The first is to the imperial guard. The imperial guard in verse 13 that is listed, we know to be the Praetorian guard. These were uh, these uh, personal bodyguards of the emperor. They were the most elite fighting force you could possibly find on the face of the planet in their time. They were the peak of all kinds of physical fitness and lore. They were assassins, and, and they, they were just the most incredible uh, soldiers you could ever find. And this status as the, the most elite uh, and the, uh, the privileged bodyguards of the, uh, of the emperor came with a privileged high-class status. They made three times the amount that any other soldiers did. They, they were able to retire with a pension after 12 years of service instead of 20 years of service. We would love that in our jobs. They had a high social status. They were influential. They, they grew in such influence that they actually became the ones who determined who took the power in Rome. They would take people out through assassination and they would take bribes and monies and payoffs to put other people into power. These people were bad. They were a bad group. And they were a close-knit bad group. But the interesting thing is that they're also responsible for the prisoners in Rome and responsible for keeping the peace in Rome and around the Roman provinces. And a man like Paul in such a situation would have no chance to infiltrate such a group. If you really think about it, Paul's no soldier. He, he you know, maybe has a really good education and, and he's a really good Jew, but that's not going to get him into a close rank of these most elite and privileged guards. But what does Paul find himself doing? Paul finds himself in prison, but he finds himself imprisoned at the hands of the Praetorian Guard. Paul is under house arrest, and unlike you know, the, the house arrest you hear about now where there's a, a big mansion and a pool and uh, go-karts maybe and putt-putt, they're, they're not able to do all of these things. Paul is in a small apartment, more than likely in Rome, and with soldiers outside and, and soldiers inside, and he would be shackled to the soldiers as was the custom of the day. And some historians actually say that these shackles would have been no longer than 18 inches long. If you think about that, 18 inches long, some of us don't even want to be that close to our spouses half the time. And Paul is chained to men, uh, man after man, hour after hour, day after day, year after year. And he's 18 inches from these people. You experience a lot of about a person 
when you were 18 inches away, 24 hours a day. And these men would rotate one after the other uh, throughout their whole brigade and each have a turn. And what, what is interesting is that Paul makes the most of the situation and he stops being a prisoner and he becomes a captor. And these, these, these soldiers, these elite and influential people now become his prisoners for as long as they have their shift. Have you ever met someone like that that just takes people captive? I don't mean that in a, in a physical sense. I mean that in a maybe conversational sense. You get cornered by someone and you're like, all right, somebody get me out of here. But Paul is doing that now, but he's doing it not by his choice, but by the providence of God. And they, these people would observe Paul. They would ask Paul, what are you in for? And he would say, oh, I'm so glad you asked because I'm going to tell you. And there's nowhere you can go and you're going to hear my whole story. And he would tell them about how he used to persecute the church and how he was converted in such a miraculous way and, and how now he serves this Christ. And they would observe him throughout his life. They would observe him reading and writing and praying and dictating letters like this one to the Philippians and singing praises to God. And, and when he would get visitors coming to him, they would observe their interactions and how he would rejoice with them in his circumstance and their circumstance and how he would pray with them and preach to them and, and tell the people about this Christ. And no doubt they would talk about Paul. After their shift, they would go back to their barracks and they would say, have you been chained to this guy Paul yet? He told me about this man Jesus and I, I, I don't know. He, he seems kind of legit, you know? I, I, I think he's serious about this. And he said he's, he's willing to stay locked up as long as it takes and, and he's willing to give his life for this man. And so the gospel would spread throughout the whole of the Praetorian Guard, this elite group of men. And they no doubt would take this information of the gospel and they would take it to their various assignments. They would take it into Caesar's house. They would take it into the provinces, uh, the provinces around Rome. And that word would spread and it would spread, as Paul says, to all the rest. This is that second group that he talks about, the second way that the gospel spreads and advances. Not only is it through the Praetorian Guard, but it says in verse 13, to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. There's a reason that word of mouth is an effective method of putting your words out there, putting your name out there as a business or what have you. It is an effective marketing strategy and it's effective because it works. People talk and they talk to these people. One person might talk to two people who talk to four people who talk to eight people and it expands and it multiplies rapidly. And that's what's happening here. The people here, they hear about this guy, Paul, and they hear it from these elite guards who are maybe talking in the streets amongst themselves and, and they're at the market and they overhear these things and go, what? We, we heard the, the guards talking about this and, uh, Maybe we should go and, and check this guy out and see if he's for real. And they would go and they would seek him out. And, and again, the only uh, freedom that Paul had was to, to accept visitors. And so he would get all the visitors he could handle. And the, he would tell them about the Lord and, and, and tell them about his story. And they no doubt would ask questions like, 
What does it mean to be imprisoned for Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? What, what is so important about a man named Christ that, that someone like Paul would be willing to be shackled to another man and, and be imprisoned for really no other reason than declaring his name? And so the word would go out to all the rest. But there's a third way that is where the gospel is going out through the providence of God, and that's found in verse 14. And it says, and, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. But you have to understand, brothers and sisters, when Paul is writing this epistle or this letter, he is writing it to a church in Philippi. But there is a church in Rome where he is imprisoned already. And this church came from those that experienced Pentecost in Acts 2. And they returned to Rome and they were gathering together and worshiping. Uh, and, and they hear about this man, Paul, through word of mouth. And they would think to themselves, Paul, wasn't that the guy who used to be named Saul? And, and wasn't that guy the guy who would persecute the church? Didn't he drag people out of their homes and, and put them into prison? And now he is sitting in prison himself for the same Christ that he imprisoned other people for? I've got to hear this guy's story. So they would seek him out as well. And they would ask him about his situation. And he would tell them about his miraculous uh, uh, conversion. And they would be emboldened. Notice that word. It's, it's an emboldening of the brothers. They're not just struck with curiosity. No, they hear about it. They seek him out. They, they hear about what the Lord has done in his life and, and how he is willing to suffer, how he has been persecuted throughout his life, and they are emboldened by it. This is not a rare occurrence for the church of Jesus Christ. The church, when it faces persecutions, when it faces uh, martyrs for the faith, it gives the church a new life. It sets a fire underneath them. It, it causes men and women, for, for some unknown reason outside of the Spirit, to dig in their heels and to determine that the name of Christ is the hill that they are going to die on. Tertullian of Carthage, if you don't know him, he is a, an ancient church father, early church father. And he wrote in his work, The Apologeticus, Referring to the persecuted church, he said, We multiply whenever we are mown down by you. The blood of Christians is seed. Later, St. Jerome, another early church father, rephrased Tertullian's words uh, to say this, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What do they mean by this? What is being implied here? They, they are implying that when the church is persecuted and the Christians are emboldened, it is for all the better for the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and that seed is watered by the Spirit, and that seed grows, and the church grows when it is persecuted. Now, this is not necessarily a physical growth. It does happen. It happens all the time. You see that in various countries like China and Africa and Iran. But it's not always the case that the physical growth happens, but it is the case always that when persecution comes, the spiritual growth of the, of the church increases, and it increases dramatically. Persecution has a way of deepening the faith of believers. It has a way of cleansing the church. It has a way of causing those who are not truly believers to fall off from the faith because they are not willing to put forth the personal sacrifice 
of what Paul and others are willing to do. So what happens? That church is polished and it grows, and that light that is found in Christ grows all the brighter in the darkness of the world, despite the persecution that it finds. And so we have to ask ourselves, how does persecution affect us? We, we do not know really what persecution looks like if you compare it to those countries that are not the United States. There is some persecution, I'm sure, on college campuses and being yelled at potentially or, or even maybe being struck uh, m- might be the most violent thing that we will experience. But how does persecution affect us? How does persecution of the church of Jesus Christ affect us? Are you emboldened or dissuaded? What does the church of Jesus Christ do when they hear about Paul and his persecution? They are emboldened by it. And that is exactly what we should be uh, when we hear about this. We can hear about pastors in Canada and, and pastors in China being thrown in prison time and time again, being beaten, starved, uh, their congregations being cast out of their churches and, and locks being put on them. Or we can hear about Christians all around the world being killed for the faith. We can say, how sad. It doesn't really affect me. It doesn't affect my family. I've got work tomorrow. I've got a deadline to meet. We might pray for them. We may not. But we should be praying for them. Hearing about these things should affect us as believers because those are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are so desensitized in this culture to what persecution actually looks like. And what we should be doing when we hear about these things is that we should be emboldened. We should be praying for strength and encouragement in the situations of these believers. We should be thanking the Lord for their providence and be praying that the Lord would increase the church all the more and make that light shine all the brighter. And then we should determine in our own minds and hearts, when that persecution comes in my life, how will I stand? Is my faith a true faith? Will I fall off if I am faced with any kind of physical ailment or difficulty or imprisonment like Paul is? Paul now reports that those that have heard are emboldened. And they now speak the word without fear. And he qualifies this statement a little bit in verse 15. He says in verse 15, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Paul actually qualifies this by putting into uh, two groups these men, these emboldened uh, people who have heard who are from that original church in Rome. And he lists them as those who preach from envy and rivalry and those who preach out of goodwill. And brothers and sisters, I don't know if you were aware of this. I don't, I don't think you've caught on yet. Maybe you have. But pastors are sinners just like you and I, or just like you. I'm a sinner. Mr. Pylan's a sinner. He may not look like it. He may not sound like it. But boy, is he a dark-hearted sinner. And by the grace of God, he is no longer under that curse. But he has been redeemed. But 
when we look at this qualification in verse 15, where we hear about some preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry and, and others out of goodwill, what is Paul trying to say here? These believers are grappling with the sin of envy. And this is a, a, a sin which is so easily put into the lives of pastors and preachers, seminarians, seminary students. I know this because I was recently one. As of May 20th, I will no longer be a seminary student, and that is a glorious thing. But what is the, the hardest, one of the hardest things for pastors and preachers to deal with, even shepherds, ruling elders, deacons, those who are in higher powers of the church, one of the hardest sins to grapple with is envy. And this envy can come from a variety of places. It can come out of discouragement. It can come out of uh, just sheer weakness and, and, and having uh, a spiritual beatdown from the devil and, and the lies of the devil. They can become envious of other people's call and other people's congregation, other people's gifts and their abilities. Say, man, if I could preach like that, these pews would be full every Sunday, morning and evening. If, if my church tied like that, I wouldn't have to work a second job. That'd be awesome. But that envy can so easily creep in in the ministry. If, I'm sure you know the, the story of George Whitfield, or at least the name of George Whitfield, a very famous pastor from history. George Whitfield, if you don't know the story, used to travel throughout the States. And he did it in Europe as well, but he did it uh, also specifically in the States. And in the States, he would travel from town to town on horseback, and he would preach the Word of God. But the thing about George Whitfield was he was so unique. He was so radical almost in the way that he would do his homiletics and the way that he would preach the Word that people didn't want him in the pulpits. At least the pastors didn't want him in their pulpits. And so he would have the pulpits of these churches restricted and, and people wouldn't let him in. And so what he would end up doing is going out into the open square and he would preach the word from the open square and people hearing him, hearing his great gift of gravitas and, and the ability to, to, to preach with such boldness and emotion and interest, they would flood into the open square. They would leave their churches, leaving their poor sinful ministers to have envy and think, if I could preach like Whitfield, or maybe if I could get rid of Whitfield, these people would come back and my church would be full once again. It is an easy thing for preachers to fall into envy. Now, you might be asking yourself, well, how does that apply to me? What can I do? And I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, encourage your pastor. I'm not saying blow smoke at him. And I'm not saying put him up on a pedestal. I'm saying encourage him. When, you're, when your life is touched, when the Spirit speaks to you by his word, go to him and say, Brother, thank you for that message. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you he will be encouraged. Because he's just spent 20 plus hours putting that message together, struggling over the text, trying to figure out how to apply it to people. And to apply it to himself first. And he will say, thank you. Brother or sister, I really, really appreciate that. And he will go home and he will sleep all night long like a baby 
unless his child wakes up, which is obviously going to happen for now. But encourage him. But not only encourage him, pray for him. Pray that the Lord would keep him from envy. Pray, him, pray that the Lord would keep him from discouragement. That the Lord would lift him up and, and uh, enable his gifts all the more to be able to minister to you all. And I promise it will be a blessing to him. But Paul talks about those that preach out of rivalry and envy and those that preach out of goodwill. Those that preach out of sinful motives are the ones, obviously, who are preaching out of envy and rivalry. And what has happened? They have heard the gospel. They have heard what is happening to Paul. They, are, they have seen what Paul's condition is in visiting him. And they have been rekindled in their boldness. They have been given a new strength and endeavor towards preaching the gospel with boldness and without fear. But they've do, they're doing it with all the wrong motives. They're doing it for pure selfish ambition. They're doing it with the hope of taking away the joys that Paul has currently. Knocking him down a peg or two. How dare Paul be so joyful when he's in prison? How dare my, my congregants go to him and listen to him preach and I can't even get them to show up every Sunday? They, they go and, and they have this, this desire to dwindle his following, to, 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 to discourage him, to make him feel jealous for some reason in his prisoning. And so they want to afflict him. And Paul knows this. He understands. He hears it. But he doesn't care. You want to know why he doesn't care? Because there's a very specific reason because those men are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are not false prophets. We might read through this and go, oh, okay, well, there's one group that's preaching the true gospel, and there's another group that's a false gospel group. But we know that's not the case, and we know that that's not the case because Paul has very, very strong words for anyone who would preach another gospel. Let them be anathema, he says. These are brothers and sisters, or I'm sorry, not sisters, hold up, but brothers only. Brothers are in, emboldened in the faith. They are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are doing it out of sinful motives, yes, but they are doing it, and they're, they're doing it accurately. They are proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ and him crucified and resurrected and ascended as the only way of salvation. And so Paul does not care what their motives are. He doesn't care even if their motives work. And people do stop going to, to Paul. And they, they, he does not care because, again, Paul has come to grips with his own humility. The Lord has blessed him in humbleness. He realizes that he is expendable to the ministry of Jesus Christ. And it is the providence of God that places him in the situation that he finds himself. In God's providence, he cannot go himself and preach in the streets or in the synagogues. He cannot go into the churches. He cannot go and, and search out the, the house of Caesar and try to preach before him. But what, he, what does he know? He knows that the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is being faithfully proclaimed and the men who are doing it are emboldened. And the word is spreading throughout the guards and Caesar's house and the provinces of Rome. And he's all about it. 
It is His every desire because the Lord is building His church. Plain and simple. And so we ask ourselves again, is it our, is it our desire to see the church of Jesus Christ expand, for the gospel to go forth, even if we can't be part of that necessarily in our own lives. We, we have different ministries, we have different ways that we like to serve, and if those, those ways are taken away by the providence of God, are we okay with saying, all right, I can't do this, I can't do what I'm, I think I'm called to do, but the gospel is going forth anyway. Do we desire that? as our main circumstance, that the gospel would advance, even if it means that we would decrease. The the real question, though, is, do we desire that the gospel would go forth, even if it means pain and suffering for us? Imprisonment like Paul. Being chained to someone else that's 18 inches away from you. The, The iron shackle ripping at the skin on your wrist. Having your freedoms taken away from you and being considered a prisoner. Are we willing to do that for the sake of the gospel? It should be the desire of every Christian that the gospel go forth. We just prayed it earlier in the service. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, what is it that we pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, our Savior calls us to pick up our cross and to pick it up daily and to proclaim the Lord as Savior to those that we know and those that we do not know. He calls us to do this with the knowledge that the world will hate us for it and that persecution will come and is promised to us. And so will you... Obey your master and pick up your cross for the kingdom of Jesus Christ if it means suffering and especially if it means that the gospel goes forth and many more are called into saving knowledge of him as Lord. Let's pray together. Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word, Lord. What a challenge it is to read it and to be stricken by it. To realize that we very often do not do these things that we should. That we do not have the boldness that we should as believers. And we cower to proclaim your name. Even though you have given us so much in your grace and poured your mercy upon us. Lord, help us to be like Paul. Help us to be willing to suffer for the name of Christ, our Savior. Help us to love other people more than ourselves and bring them the name of Christ, calling them to proclaim Him as their Creator and Savior. Father, we pray that you would give us that power through your Spirit. Convict us of this, Lord, daily. Embolden us daily. Bring glory and honor to your name. We pray these things 
in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our only Lord. Amen.